everybody. Welcome to season two, episode three of Center Stand, the motorcycle industry podcast produced by the Progressive International Motorcycle Shows and hosted on ContinueTheRide.com. Today, we're talking with leading strategic advisors and consultants in the power sports community and getting their thoughts on the pandemic's impact on our industry and more importantly, what we need to do to set us up for success in 2021 as we move forward out of this hellish environment we've been in. I want to welcome our guests today, Mark Sheffield, Strategic Advisor for Woods Indian Motorcycle, and Derek Sanders, Power Sports Consultant. Gentlemen, both of you say hello, please. Good morning. Howdy. All right, there we go. Uh, Mark, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I've known you for a few years and I've been following along on LinkedIn. You put up some really great posts. You've been vocal about your opinion. You're bold about what you state. Uh, and for anyone who isn't yet familiar with you, would you give us uh, kind of that uh, nickel tour of your of your history, please? So I know the the accent is always a dead giveaway, but I am British. I was born just north of London, had the opportunity <laughs> to live all over the world and uh, ended up in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, six days after I graduated from high school, joined the military, did a four-year tour in the Army, spent a little bit of time over in Iraq during the first Gulf War, and got out of the military on a Monday, started working at a small motorcycle dealership on a Tuesday, and have essentially done that for the last 30 years. I uh, had the opportunity about 15 years ago to partner up with Mark, Mark Woods in a, a dealership we have uh, just north of San Antonio. And then I do a, a little bit of consulting for Spader Business Management, leading some 20 groups and do some other random work with OEMs and manufacturers um, when their projects align with the things that I feel like uh, we can accomplish. Keeping it interesting. So I think um, all of our listeners obviously are familiar with our bump in the uh, industry in 2020 and uh, kind of our ups and downs and our, our successes and woes. Uh, but you recently published an article wanting us to be cautious of that hype and not completely embrace it. Can you dive into that a little bit for us? You know, if you look at, and, and industry stats are hard to come by, uh, luckily I have access to good amounts of data through Spader, and uh, so I tend to be a, a data guy. I always say I'm a, I'm a card-carrying nerd, um, so I can spend hours working on a formula in Excel. And I really like to dig in and look at the data, and when we look at the end of 2019, you know, we know that about 10% of the inventory that was out in the field was 365 days old or older. And we can make an assumption that about 20% of the inventory that was out in the field at the end of 2019 was either 365 plus or it was non-current inventory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, dealers in our industry have really gotten to be poor inventory managers. And a lot of that is really driven by free flooring. You know, I, I joke around and say that free flooring is like crack for dealers. Once they get hooked on it, it's really, really hard to get off of it. And you know, manufacturers could sell vehicles in one of two ways. You know, they could make really cool stuff that consumers want to buy and, uh, and drive demand that way. Or they can just load up dealers with, with tons of stuff. And when it gets to the point where we're having to pay interest on that inventory, then dealers work hard to get rid of it. And so when you, when you look at uh, the turn ratio for the industry 
uh, at the end of 2019 was right around 2.2 turns, which historically, uh, that's a really bad turn ratio. If you had a, an automotive dealership that had a 2.2 turns, GM, sales manager, everybody would be fired. Um, nobody would be around. Mm-hmm. And 2.2 and turns essentially represents five to five and a half months of inventory sitting in the showroom, sitting in the warehouse. And because of this, you know, the, the pandemic created this really unique situation where dealers were able to, one, clear out the warehouse, clear out the showroom, and not only sell all this inventory, but sell it at a profit. And, and so, the, you know, digging back in, the reason that I really say that we need to um, really not get too caught up in, in these statistics about the industry growing 25% last year or 24% or, or whatever number you tend to believe is that a lot of those sales that we saw last year was dealers just clearing out all this old age, dead inventory, um, and the manufacturers don't really have anything left sitting in their warehouse at this point in time. Uh, And so we don't have the ability to recreate that level of sales this year um, that dealers saw last year. And so I think that if you really want to look at what the true growth of the industry was last year, I think you need to extract a lot of that non-current, that old age inventory out of there. And then that really gives you a, a good indicator of how strong the, the industry was last year. That's a great point um, that we just can't take it for granted. Uh, my, my question for Derek Sanders joining us here. Um, you've consulted in both power sports uh, and technology. So give us a little insight into your career and the background and, and how you connect to those two uh, fields. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on first and foremost. So I was a um, hippie musician when I started my life out of high school and into college. I studied sound engineering, of all things, did a tour in Europe in a bluegrass band for a couple of years, dreadlocks, the whole thing. Um, And I was in the restaurant industry to support my bad habits of being a musician. And I just got tired. I wanted to have a family. One of my bartenders at a bar that I had opened with some buddies got a job at a Harley Davidson dealership in Dallas, Texas. And he said, you should come sell Harleys with me. I'm like, that sounds like fun. I love motorcycles. I've been riding since I was five. So I did it. I I was a sales guy for a year. Ride Now bought the store. I got uh, shoved into the Ride Now um, engine, if you will, put in, spit out. But I had a really awesome mentor, Dale Rhodes, who kind of took me under his wing and taught me everything about the process. About a year later, I got a job offer at Republic Harley Davidson to be the sales manager. And I was very fortunate enough to have been implemented and sent to all the Limco 20 groups. We were in all the Harley PG 20 groups. And uh, much like Mark, I love the data. I just like seeing the numbers and seeing what all of that represented. So I took a lot of notes and um, I met a guy named Jim Vaughn at a 20 group meeting down in the Virgin Islands with uh, the Lemco guys. And Jim Vaughn started trying to get me to come to work to be a software sales guy for his CRM that we used at my dealership. And I liked it and I liked him, but I was making a lot of money selling Harleys and I was not a software sales guy. So basically I said, look, if you'll let me start my hand at consulting, because I know the CRM very well and I know what it's done for my dealership. If you let me just start this little side hustle inside of Vcept, which was the name of the company, then I'll come on board and I can swallow it and uh, do this thing. So I did it. 
And fortunately, I had a modicum of success because Jim Vaughn sold that company to Lightspeed a couple years after I started. And that's when I decided to go into DS1 Consulting to start my own little thing, having had a CRM background, knowing that technology was important, and also knowing that probably 80% of the owners of motorcycle dealerships got into the business, not because it's profitable, Mark can attest to that, um, <laughs> but because it's fun, you know, they're enthusiasts, so they're not the you know most tech savvy guys. So, and I'm not necessarily myself, but I know some people that are, and I've always been a, a quick study to look around the room and see who the smartest person is. And if I can imitate what they're doing, then chances are I can get where they're going. And so that's what I do. So I like technology because I think it makes our job easier and it allows the human capital that we have at the dealership to do the things that are important, building relationships that technology can't do. So I like mixing a little bit of peanut butter and chocolate and making it nice. Nice. Throw a little candy coating on there and I bet you could sell that. Yeah. Um, so our, uh, our industry and the rider base is evolving. Um, and you have watched that happen uh, in your career. How are dealers changing their process to fit these new buyers? And is that something that is has been evolutionary or has there been like a significant kickstart because of 2020? So yes and yes. Mm -hmm. So um, some dealers, you know, they're first of all attracting this new buyer. It's not just because I don't think the, the pandemic happened. It's also because people are starting to wake up. These dealers are hiring influencers. They're trying to get a broader outreach. And uh, for some of the OEMs, they're actually making stuff to Mark's point or earlier that people actually want to buy some cool new low CC motorcycles. The side by side industry uh, is offering some really fun, cool, you know, basically a rally car for 20 grand you can get. So there are those things. But dealers, I think, are attracting these new people because they're taking the time to do something more than just post a picture of some guy that just bought his four wheeler on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So they're they're hiring influencers to get people to come out and to engage with dealerships. As far as the process is concerned, I think, you know, there's a bunch of good companies and new companies that are evolving and having technology out there that uh, allows for just a real easy experience, um, like posting up all of your used inventory on different platforms, etc. But um, I believe that some of these OEMs are doing other things like making free pickup or delivery available to customers. Uh, this whole contactless uh, term, hot term has gone viral. And I think some of these dealers are stepping into doing that as well. I know some of the OEMs even are reimbursing dealers for free pickup and or delivery. So I think there's just little nuances that are changing with regards to the process. I know that the new younger buyer uh, doesn't have a lot of experience talking to real human beings. They were brought up on technology, instant messaging, text messaging. So I think going to platforms that uh, like connect where your staff can now text message customers as opposed to having to call them, things like that are being implemented to make it an easier buy, if you will, for potential customers. Right. Okay. So uh, now the motorcycle industry, Derek, has been accused in the past of being far behind the car 
uh, automotive industry in terms of technology and the way that they have reached out to customers. Do you think that our transition is being driven by consumers pushing for that change, or do you think it's being driven by OEMs, or is it is it just hyper individualistic? I mean, is Ducati doing it completely different from from Harley, from you know, uh, from a company like Janus, a small company? Is it just this massive diversity? Uh, that's that's hitting us right now, uh, or is it is it? Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is it is it being driven more by consumers or being driven more by the OEM side of things? Well, that's a really good question, and honestly, I think the consumers have spoken, and I think mm-hmm. uh, thanks to our friends at the CDC, they have spoken in a way that says, "Hey, we want this to be as easy as possible." Uh, again, going back to a social you know, maybe breakdown from Gen X's to millennials is that they don't want the hassle. They don't want the struggle. They want transparency. They want to know exactly what they're getting into. And for some of these reasons, I think that that has ultimately forced the hand of the dealerships to change their ways and to get more technical Mm -hmm. and to change the processes. Because I can tell you, from my experience being in dealerships, the days of, uh, why don't you come in? My boss will give you the best deal if you get here. That doesn't fly anymore. People want to know exactly what they're stepping into before they come to a dealership. So what happens then? You have to change your process. The old way doesn't work anymore. So Mark, you when you and I worked around the same time together in that same dealership at Woods, many moons and addresses ago, um, the, uh, it was more of that sort of thing. Somebody would come in and, and literally a sales guy would walk up and would essentially ask, Hey, what can I sell you today? Right. Um, so living through a digital revolution, um, and, uh, as things have changed, what is the, the latest thing that dealers are having, or you are having to do, uh, at your dealership, um, in order to uh, to address these uh, consumer changes, what's the the latest uh, uh, tactic you guys have been using? You know, I, I tell you the probably the the most impactful thing that I've done over the last five years of my time at Spader mm-hmm. um, is without telling dealers um, and without telling my twenty groups a week or two prior to a meeting, I have digitally shopped every one of those dealers in those groups. Mm-hmm. And then we'll sit down at the meeting and I'll ask everyone, hey, go ahead and, and put 20 bucks in the in the pot. And they'll say, why? And I'll say, I'm, I'm going to show you in a few minutes. And uh, so you'll collect all this money. And then one by one, I will show the dealers what the response was to my digital inquiry um, to those dealers. And then we'll, we'll um, score each response on a multitude of factors. And we'll try to identify who in the group did the, the best job of responding to those leads. And it is an eye opener for a lot of dealers. Uh, the, the biggest, biggest eye opener for dealers is the large majority of them um, that don't even respond to the lead. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, it's really, really painful to go through with some of these dealers. But that's been kind of the slap in the face that I think a lot of people have really needed um, to kind of get them to to think, you know, we need to change up how we're, we're training our staff. And a lot of dealers still train their employees 
to deal with walk-in customers and utilize that process for you know a customer that comes to the front door. And what I tell dealers is that 75% of your sales team are probably never going to be very good at responding to digital leads. Um, and it's just, it's a different skill set. And, you know, what, what you see is that, is that, you know, a dealer who hasn't done any training for this, you know, they either set up the round robin system with our website, the, the leads come in from the customers and then they just go out to, you know, one salesperson and the next, and they kind of respond, you know, whenever it's convenient to them, whenever they've got things going on. And, you know, one of the other painful things that I really come into is that when I shop dealers, I will specifically ask three or four questions. And I want to see if the person who responds can even, you know, just formulate responses to those questions that I ask. And in so few cases, do you ever find it's, you know, you'll ask four or five really pointed questions. And the response you get back is, here's my phone number, 830, give me a call and uh, we can talk about this. And that's just the wrong way to do things. And you know, right. <laughs> deal, dealers continue to try to you know, a, a younger consumer, they're comfortable behind the keyboard, they're, they're comfortable behind the text. And the first things that dealers do is try to pull the customer out of their comfort zone. And, and that's just the wrong way to do it. And we've got such a long way to go as an industry um, just to be caught up to this younger generation. All right. So that, Mark, is a, is a key issue. Um, but so I just want to hit on something that a question that we didn't write down here for you guys, but as, so being tactically minded here, if I'm at a, if I'm at a, a dealership of a certain strata, say I have a, a couple of major OEMs and a, and a, and a minor one, um, and a, you know, a reasonable, uh, service business, does it make sense for me then to hire somebody who's a salesperson who is, is only good at online and then essentially, footballs that human or that transaction to a, a a floor salesperson if that person comes in? Or is it a matter of trying to train every single salesperson to be good at both the live interaction and the digital interaction? You you want to go, Derek, or you want me to talk about sure. this? Sure. Um, I would love to, to speak on this. I for the last five years, I've been preaching to dealers to commit at least one person. And Mark said 75% of the customers are coming through digitally. So the answer is emphatic. Yes, you. it needs to be changed. Everything needs to be changed. There needs to be less on the floor guys that are sales guys and more people to handle the influx of telephone calls and or social media. Also with the emails that are coming in. Because you're right, Mark, it's a total different skill set. And this is something that I've been talking to dealers for the last five years that, you know, me training somebody to be an Internet salesman that is a DS on the old disk profile. That's not the same guy. So it's completely different. And I think that every dealership needs dedicated more than just maybe one person to handle these inbound phone calls or digital social media leads for sure. You know, I, Mark. Mark, go ahead, please. You know, as you get um, a lot of dealers that kind of use that axiom and go, you know, we're so far behind the auto industry. You know, you've seen over the last five years that a lot of dealers have kind of climbed up on the BDC wagon and said, you know, hey, we need a BDC and, you know, the auto guys use this, so it's going to work for us. And, um, you know, I've put a couple of articles out on my blog about this that, uh, you know, the majority of power sports dealers that put a BDC in place 
six months later, they've already disbanded it and gone back to the way that they're doing things. I think that, you know, the best middle ground for a lot of dealers is um, you kind of do it in a three, three pronged approach. One, you need to identify which members of your team are good at digital. And then you've got to kind of divide up, okay, we're going to send these leads to those individuals because they're going to do the best job of taking care of those customers. Two, we got to do training. And that's where so many dealers just just drop the ball. So we still just do our walk arounds and our sales meeting every morning. And we talk about features and benefits, um, but we're not talking about, you know, here's here's how you respond to a digital lead. And the third one, and this is really easy and anyone can do it, is that you require that your sales team, when they respond to a customer, that they blind carbon copy the sales manager. And just the fact of doing that and knowing that the sales manager is looking at those leads and then he's utilizing that as training, um, that will really change a lot of outcomes. Pressure makes a diamond, right? So um, uh, talk to us, like I, I can imagine your 20 group and these dealers, you know, particularly dealer principals, when they see a pot of money go away from them, that's the eye-opening thing, right? So I think putting real cash behind it is brilliant. Uh, and um, talk to us a little bit about the ones maybe who aren't in a 20 group, who don't have that kind of experience um, of, of having peers review their business. Uh, Mark, would you hit on like some of the, the, the key issues uh, or areas where dealers are missing out on? Can you expand on that a little bit? And you're talking in regards to digital leads? Uh, yeah, just just in in their general business practice right now, uh, digital leads being a, a huge part of that. But um, uh, in our current environment, what are the areas where most uh, even dealers who are engaged in twenty groups that like where they're lacking? What 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 can a smaller dealer who's not in that environment yet? What can they learn from that? Um, you know, I think that one of the things that uh, not not just 20 group dealers, but all dealers um, are really losing out on right now is that we're not collecting customer information when we don't have products to sell. You know, we're not doing a good job of when a customer comes in a door and says, hey, you know, this is what I'm looking for. And the dealer goes, I'm sorry, I don't have any of those right now. I've got some in order, but I don't even know when they're going to come in. Then we kind of drop the ball right there and we're not collecting that customer information so that we can communicate with them down the road and you know getting that customer in the door the first time is is one of the hardest actions that we take and so you know now we spent the money we spent the time we've got the customer there you know let's start building a relationship with that customer even if we don't have a new vehicle to sell them maybe it's a hat or it's a shirt now they're on the news list and they're going to get an email from the dealership. And, you know, so you start building that relationship like that. And I think the other area that um, we are are really missing out right now is that, yes, we have attracted a lot of new customers to the industry. Mm -hmm. But, you know, our delivery process in so many cases is, yep, yeah, thanks. You're, you're through the F&I process. You've written the check. We got the financing done. Here's your new vehicle. Good luck. And and so you take this new customer who's never ridden before or just got out of the MSF or he's buying a watercraft and he's never been on the watercraft before. And, you know, we are just setting those customers up for failure by not doing a better job of teaching them how to use the products, how to take care of them and what they need to do, what their responsibilities are as a consumer. Because with so many products these days, it's, it's buy it and forget it. 
And the products that we sell, they're not that way. They require lots of work. They require lots of maintenance. It's not the BMW that, you know, 50,000 miles, you get your first oil change or, or whatever the service is. You know, it's 600 miles, bring it in because there's probably going to be some stuff that's falling off of there already. And we need to correct <laughs> that. Right. Okay. So that speaks a little bit to, um, you know, back back in the day, quote unquote, right? There would be bike nights, and there would be people getting together. And now, in this, uh, in our post-pandemic, you can't you can't have a like a Zoom motorcycle ride, right? Yes, you're not going to do that, right? That would be kind of deadly. Zoom so, bagels. Yeah, yeah. There we go. That would be awesome. Um, so, uh, uh, Derek, uh, you know, in regards to the new technology and these new um, customers coming in, our younger customers coming in, uh, you know, COVID stigma, um, and, uh, and, and doing like sort of contact. How do we, how do we keep the personality in motorcycling when we're also trying to do con contactless delivery and address some of what Mark was saying there? Uh, another good question. So, you know, there's so many cool new tools out there with, uh, the technology advancing and just even over the last year i mean i i found myself at home with uh, nowhere to go starting march of last year and i was like wait a minute hopefully this goes over quick and it, it didn't so i started reaching out and trying to figure out who's doing what out there so i could at least be relevant to my clients and i found a co couple of really cool companies that are engaging in ways that i like to do and I practice as far as social media is concerned and um, other companies that are doing things which as a principal would really appreciate like Zen Dealer, they track customers who call in and they're able to, they have technology that allows them to track what platform they saw you on mm -hmm. and they automatically upload that into your CRM with the customer's name and source of the call. So I think that for dealer principals being able to see okay my marketing dollars really have made an impact on facebook marketplace or cycle trader or craigslist or whatever the case is i think this is something that we've relied on salespeople to do in the past which they never do so having this new technology has been a game changer for some dealers understanding better what results what the roi is on their money spent for marketing you know guys like uh, joe irabaran with um beyond yeah, creative right. yeah he does an awesome job he's got bdc up and running now a couple of my clients are actually using him to make outbound campaign calls to try to get inventory i mean as inventory is scarce from the oems what better way to to engage your customers than talking about something they bought from you a couple of years ago and or brought into your service department then offering to cut them a check for it or use that as a down payment on their next vehicle or their machine. So um, his technology is is brilliant. He's got all kinds of uh, factors. He understands the Googles, the AdWords, the Facebooks, all that stuff. You know, and I think that's important with the, the new COVID stigmas, not having to have people physically at your dealership, but having it broadcast out on multi different platforms. And another company that I love is MenuSys. They have a menu program that's an application. So from Lightspeed, you can create a menu, a mobile menu that has everything from a base payment all the way up to your gas and go program with all of the prepaid maintenance, warranties, guaranteed asset protection, et cetera, built into 
uh, app. They shoot over to your phone and then the customer gets to play with this app and design their own payment. Hmm. So I have dealers that are in the, you know, Polaris territory up in Minnesota, Southern Canada, a, eh? and they're telling me that, man, you know what? Our Polaris buyer, we were averaging 6.7% profit on, but now with this application, we're selling warranties. And for the first time ever, they're using our banks instead of their credit union. So it's a, it's game changer. And I think that as dealer principals open their minds up a little bit to, Hey, technology could be a good thing, even though I have to spend $200 a month on it, then I think that's going to help change the playing field with this new buyer. Who's uh, like Mark said, he's comfortable behind the keyboard and the text message. So why not just go so after him that way? So in short, to put that into a human perspective, you're saying that this current customer is happier checking a box for an extended warranty rather than hearing an F&I guy give him a sales pitch for that same product. Is that right? Hey, oh, whoa, way over here. Okay, yeah, exactly. They don't want to hear the the whole word tracks anymore. They don't like getting clubbed like a baby seal in the box, mm -hmm. so to speak. So it makes it real simple, and then there's no assumption, and there's no... You know, there's no human interaction. So I think they like it better that way. That's ironic. I think that motorcycling is such a community activity, but sometimes the sales are getting to be, um, you know, a little bit less so. So it's kind of on us to uh, to keep doing that as an industry to keep people riding. But I want to switch over to a, kind of a different subject right now. Uh, Mark, um, we've uh, we've talked about the need for dealers to take control of their inventory. Uh, Derek hit on, a, a, you know, opportunities to generate um, used inventory. Um, can you develop, uh, uh, talk us into a little bit of a conversation on uh, inventory management uh, for, for dealers in the current era? So the, um, you know, I, I tend to spend a lot of time talking about OEMs in one of two lights. Um, so some I refer to as business partners and some I refer to as vendors. And I think that that's really kind of based on the relationship that they have with their dealers. You know, if you look at the, the way that dealers buy inventory right now, you know, a lot of that is really driven by the manufacturer's rep coming in and saying, hey, we got an order program that's opening up. You buy X dollars, you get free flooring for 150 days. If you buy X minus $1, you get free flooring for 30 days. And, you know, we're at a point right now where interest rates are at historically low um, percentages and free flooring shouldn't be the driver that dealers use to figure out what they are going to stock in their dealerships. What, what dealers should really be doing, and there's a, there's a calculation we use on this called ROAI or return on average inventory. And it's a, it's a very simple calculation, uh, and it's the, the sales volume. It's the total revenues over a 12-month period. It is the margin that you made on those, on those products that you sold, and it's the average inventory level that you had. And you have those three items. You can calculate your ROAI. And there's only three things that move that number, and that is you, if you want to increase your ROAI, you can sell more, you can make a better margin on those products, or you can stock less. And there's a sweet spot that dealers need to shoot for. And so I refer to it as brand viability. When you do this, you can measure the ROAI by brand. And then you will find out in your dealership who is really carrying their weight and who mm -hmm. isn't. Mm -hmm. 
And dealers need to to utilize data like this to figure out, hey, you know, what are we going to stock and which manufacturers are truly our business partners? Which ones are are not only bringing cool products to the table, but they're helping us to move our business forward? And which ones do are they only interested in the value of their stock today and the value of their stock tomorrow? And, and which ones only are only concerned about increasing their share value? And, and so dealers can kind of utilize all these different pieces to figure out who they're going to partner with to move their business forward. So that kind of uh, mechanism is something that can actually give a dealer pretty significant leverage in a conversation with an OEM. Instead of the OEM driving all the data, there's an opportunity to say, hey, you're not really helping me uh, move the ball here. Is that right? Yeah, and you can have a list. I mean, if you've got seven or eight brands in your dealership, it's easy to pull up this ROAI list and go, okay, you're saying that we need to stock more vehicles, but my margin on everything that I sell for you is really low. We've got lots of old age inventory and your ROAI in my dealership puts you near the bottom. And it's really interesting because I've had lots of dealers go through and do that calculation. And the dealers that they, the dealers who thought that particular brands are really strong in their dealerships. Once they go through and do this, they're like, you know what? I, I know who I'm calling and which brands I'm dropping because I'm getting getting rid of one or two because they just don't make sense. And this was the number that I needed to help me figure that out. Is there still issues where a dealer's in love with a particular brand because they, you know, they rode that bike around in the field in the sixties. And so that's their baby. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, they, it's a hard to separate, you know, business from that passion. Is that right? Do, do you know what you call a business that doesn't make any money? What's that, Mark? A hobby. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, that's, that's kind of where our industry is. And, and it's good and it's bad. You know, when people talk about the automotive industry being so far ahead of our, in, out, out, out of our industry, you know, we still have a lot of enthusiasts in, in the power sports industry. We still have a lot of people who ride the products they sell. They enjoy doing what they're doing. And so because of that, you end up getting a lot of people in this industry who run their business like a hobby instead of running their business like a business. And that's some of the, the calculations and some of the thought process that we put behind trying to help dealers to move forward and make some data driven decisions, not just run the business based off what their gut is telling them. So, Derek, on the other side of the technology coin is is humanity. So, uh, basis what Mark just said, should the hobby focus of a dealership be the community, whereas whereas business is business on the dealer floor? Well, I always say if it's not fun, it's just a job. And if it's just a job, go find something fun to do. Life's too short. So, um, I think the hobby thing is... You know, it's awesome because we have a lot of dealerships and there are a lot of enthusiasts out there. And for guys like Mark and myself who like to have fun and earn a profit, uh, it, it represents a little challenge sometimes. So I feel like this has been an, a huge wake up call this last year for dealers to start going, wait a minute, we were close in 09. We almost lost it in 09. And then we were. I mean, basically, it could have gone one of two ways last year, and luckily it went in a positive way. But I think it's been a wake-up call, like, okay, we definitely have to do things differently to ensure that we're going to be here in the next five years, in the next 10 years. Um, so to answer your question, it's it's a fine line. Dealer principals have to enjoy it or else it's not fun, but they also have to realize that 
to sustain it, they got to make money, put money away. I, I think you're hitting on something really important here. And this is something that I was thinking about back in, uh, you know, April, May is sort of the language around which business could continue to operate. I think our industry took for granted in 2020 that we were an essential business. And I, I would argue that uh, in, a, in North America, owning a motorcycle is not necessarily essential. And if we, if we look that gift horse in the mouth, that could be taken away very quickly. And we could have quickly been lumped into the side of a coffee shop, for instance. But the fact that, that we have registered taxable uh, you know, vehicles out on the road that require service that we were, you know, that we're a small part of the transportation matrix, but we were really lucky to be lumped into uh, essential because of quick decisions that had to be made. So uh, we can't take that for granted and we have to keep pushing ahead. Um, I've got a couple more questions I'd like to ask you guys, but I want to ask, I'm going to ask this question of both of you and I would like uh uh, each of you to respond here, um, kind of with your own perspective. But uh, to make our changes in our industry, looking forward to 2021, in your opinion, what is the key training that needs to happen for, uh, and I'm going to nail it right into sales, what's the key training that needs to happen for existing or new sales staff? Go ahead, Derek. All right, so key training first of all onboarding is something that does not happen in our industry unfortunately that needs to happen to set the expectation from day one as opposed to here's your computer here's a phone start selling here's your pay plan if you need any help i'm over here looking at facebook or craigslist and i'll get to you as i can so these people have been brought on board thinking that everybody walks it through the front door and there's a nine step sales process that's going to magically get you from the point where they walk in to the point where you say, thanks a lot, have fun and good luck with it. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case anymore. So technology, um, understanding what these potential salespeople are up against. And another thing that we never talk about is like, what is the dealership's expectation? What metrics are they measuring? And once they define that, then okay, how do we train our people to meet our expectations? So being able to answer in a timely manner, mm -hmm. a Facebook post or a social media response or an email, this is essential because we know that two minutes is your time window because I've been able to conjure up in five minutes, 15 dealerships that I'm waiting on a response. And if you can't get an answer in two minutes from my dealership, then I've already lost the game. So not only timeliness, but the proper response. Mark touched on this earlier, which I love because I'm, I'm a huge relationship guy. This is the only way that you can set yourself apart from any other dealership. And in my training, when I go to a dealership, the first thing I do when I sit down with the sales guy is we call four dealerships in that local market and ask them, do you have it? How much? What's the best deal? And I just sit there and watch the expression on the sales guy's face go, holy crap, this guy sucks. And I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. that's you. You are that guy until you choose not to be, until you create a game plan. And this is what we're going to go over. So it's being able to be good on the phones, being able to be well-versed in responses, being able to build a relationship. I mean, I believe in asking questions. And then when your customer asks a question, 
Don't tell them to call you, answer the question and then ask your own question to engage, to drive the conversation. So I think it's imperative we train people on the new digital that we have and have those technologies readily available for our staff to use because my job as a sales guy is to make it easy to own. But my job as a dealer principal is to make it easy to sell for the salesperson. Mm. Mark, would you like to build on that? You know, we, we get a lot of a lot of employees in our industry that, you know, have worked at other dealerships. And so you can't always do this, but I kind of like to build on what Derek said a little bit. And when my recommendation is that when a dealer hires a new salesperson, especially if that person is new to the area, is pay that person for a couple of days and have them go out and physically shop the competition. Go mm -hmm. in, know who your competition is, know how they treat customers, know how they operate. And that's a, typically a big eye opener for a lot of dealerships. Um, you know, I think the other thing that dealers really need to work on is that a lot of dealers haven't dialed in, you know, what their culture uh, is in their dealership, what their values mm -hmm. are and what they really want people to do. And it's important that you identify what those things are so that when you hire people, you hire people that are aligned with how you want to operate, how you want to take care of your customers, the products that you want to sell instead of just hiring the first person who can come in, who can fog up a mirror. <laughs> Good point. And I think that, uh, uh, Derek, I like your point that uh, relationships aren't just the door swings now. It's not just, uh, you know, uh, shaking somebody's hand or or touching elbows, as it were. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's it's an online relationship. I know that uh, I've had plenty of like really interesting conversations where I don't even know what this person sounds like, you know, just through uh, Facebook interactions and things like that. Uh, and so our expanding of what the word uh, consumer relationship uh, is, is really critical in our industry. Uh, Mark, uh, I want to talk a little bit about fixed operations. So we talked a lot about online sales. We talked a lot about, um, you know, how there's a lot more comfort around that sort of thing. But why is it important uh, that uh, our fixed operations are, are a focus in our work right now? When we talk about fixed ops, we're talking about the parts in the service departments. Um, and, you know, you get dealers that kind of banter around and go, well, you know, if if the sales department falls off and, and we're not generating all of our F&I dollars, that we can fall back on parts and we can fall back on service. And that is a true statement. The problem is, is that you just can't instantly turn that switch on. You know, if you want to be good at something, you've got to practice doing it. And you've got to be committed to doing it. And the best time for dealers to focus on parts and service is when the sales department is busy because you're generating the income to be able to spend the extra dollars to, to do training, to hire the right people and to make sure that you're up to speed so that when you really need those departments that, you know, they are there for you to fall back on. You know, the other item is that a lot of, you know, with consumers getting more and more comfortable with buying things online, you know, there's a great opportunity when a customer is buying a new vehicle, when they're excited about that purchase to want to be able to accessorize it, to put a roof or a top or a windshield or, you know, lowering kit or whatever, whatever components they want to put on there. And so these fixed operations department, they are a complement to the sales department. What you, what you see is that you get some dealers that are just so focused on the sales department or 
what's even more concerning to me is the dealers, the first time I see their financials, I find out that 120% of the net profit of the dealership comes out of the F&I department. You know, mm-hmm. that, is a, that is a recipe for failure because when sales goes away, F&I goes away, and what's ultimately going to happen is those dealers are going to go away. That's, you know, there was a really interesting thing. Um, a few summers ago, I went to Los Angeles and I get to, I got to rent a lift at a community garage place called Lucky Wheels Garage. And, uh, they had a handful of oil and sort of essentials like on the shelf. And then I looked over and there was a whole bunch of boxes that like had Amazon labels on them on unopened boxes. And I said, Hey, what's that? Is that like more inventory and stuff? And he goes, oh, no, that's like consumers who ordered their <laughs> stuff and uh, and they shipped it into us and they're going to ride their motorcycle in and they're going to add their own accessories. They're going to add their own stuff and then they're going to ride away. And can you imagine that at a, at a traditional dealership is that I'm going to have those tires I got a smoking deal on shipped to your dealership. And I'm going to, you know, I'll, you know, I'll mount them over there. I'll have you guys mount them over there. So there are new progressive business models that are happening um, all around us. Uh, you know, coffee shop repair places in Atlanta and so on and so forth. There are new business models. I encourage our dealers to look at some of those independent models. And there are considerable come up with something new and interesting and once as everybody gets you know vaccinated and we start to get more uh, uh, comfortable being around in groups and indoors and that sort of thing there's a great opportunity to sort of change the way the motorcycle dealerships work and learn from some of those smaller operations so i'm going to end our interview here but i want to end it with uh, the same question i ask all of our guests for the last couple of seasons of center stand uh, i'll ask the question once and i'll ask each of you guys to uh, to answer this and uh, Derek, you know, you got consultant in there. So, you know, put a cap on it, my man. Don't give it a, don't give up all the cookies in the lobby, right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta save some of this, right? Uh-huh. Uh, however, I'm gonna ask you guys both, um, if you were to address the entire uh, motorcycle OEM and, and dealer network in one place at one time, what is that piece of advice you would give them today that you think would stick most? Let's start with Derek. All right, another good question, sir. Um, I wanna keep it real simple here. I mean, to me, not only in the dealership I preach this, but I believe this to be true where the manufacturers are concerned. I think that OEMs need to make it easy to sell. They need to simplify the process for the dealers Uh, There's too many jumps and hoops. And if you do this, then this happens. I think that dealers would be, they would benefit if things were a lot simpler and, you know, the flooring and whatever else that comes along with that ordering. Um, If they made that as simple as possible, then the dealer's job would be to make it easy to own. And that's like why guys like me are in the business and fortunate enough to have a job to help people create a better customer experience. So if OEMs could make it easy to sell, Dealerships can make it easy to own. That's the two pieces of advice I have. Very simple. Excellent. Mark? I would tell dealers to take to heart, you know, my point about some of the manufacturers being vendors and some of the manufacturers being business partners. And and oddly enough, some of those manufacturers out there who truly are vendors think they're business partners. 
And so I think dealers need to really dig in and figure out who they want to partner with to move their businesses forward. And they should make those decisions, not just based on a gut feeling, but based on the manufacturers who are really supporting all aspects of the business, who are providing the tools and the support that dealers need to be successful and viable going forward. All right, some sound words of advice. I want to thank our guests for Center Stand uh, today, our friend uh, Mark Sheffield, former military man, strategic advisor at Woods Indian Motorcycle, and Derek Sanders, former hippie musician (laughs) uh, for DS1 Consulting. Both of these guys are fantastic with data. They're fantastic with the advice that they're giving uh, dealers out there. I encourage you to connect with them uh, through LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, and follow along. Keep following along with us here on Center Stand. Um, we're going to be putting out more information on uh, LinkedIn for sneak peeks into upcoming episodes and news from uh, IMS and the IMS outdoor season. Uh, we're excited to continue to bring news and ideas in tactical ways this season to help you support our amazing industry of power sports and how we can all work together to keep 2020's momentum going into 2021 and continue to grow the fantastic world of motorcycling, of off-road, and all of power sports. Next week, we're going to drill into uh, uh, getting more kids exposed into riding riding motorcycles uh, and riding off-road. And if you have any topics you would like us to answer during the season, reach out to imspr at informa.com. That's I-M-S-P-R at informa.com and the upcoming e-newsletter is coming to an inbox near you for free featuring articles that dive into our discussed topics you can visit all of that and subscribe at continuetheride.com gentlemen thank you both very much for your continued contributions to our fantastic industry thanks for your time today and we will see you down the road <laughs>